Hello, forecasters. This is Michael Hendricks joining you on January 3rd, 2021. I found myself in a bit of a pickle and that I am actually re-recording certain parts of Season 2, Episode 1 of my prize forecast, the episode first and second quadrennial elections, uh, frankly, because the first recording I was completely displeased with. I haven't even listened to it, uh, but just going through the episode as I was recording it yesterday, uh, I knew that it was substandard. It was below what I consider good quality for a podcast. So I am recording, sorry, re-recording certain parts of that podcast uh, because, look, especially looking at the first election, the first quadrennial election, I was just all over the place on that, uh, trying, I don't know, maybe to fill gaps, maybe to fill time, but I was wrong on information, uh, that I, I realized as I was going through the podcast had to redo. Uh, I may end up going ahead and just re-recording both parts of the first quadrennial election and the second quadrennial election. I'm actually going to leave uh, the final segment, the seditious and traitorous uh, piece, because uh, I am satisfied with that one. Uh, I see no need to change it or, or even update it. Uh, as I'm still dealing with the disappointment with the Trumplican party at this point, that they continue to go down this path to protect someone who isn't worth protecting. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, but I get into that more on that section. So basically what I'm going to do is we're going to restart this, uh, when I originally looked at this to do every single presidential race, which there have been 59 of, I originally thought that there was a lot of drama in most elections, if not all. And when I looked at this, especially for the first quadrennial election, it, it, it seemed curious to me that not a lot had been mentioned about James Madison, who finished second and became the vice president of that quadrennial election. But the more I looked into it, the more I studied it in the midst of doing my podcast, I realized I was completely wrong on that information, that there really was no drama in that first quadrennial election. There was really no drama in the second quadrennial election either. And so I am combining the first and second quadrennial elections, the presidential elections, into one podcast um, that will help me get a little bit more to get all of them in one season in one year because I still plan on doing this every week. Um, but really, when we look at the first and second quadrennial elections, this is really where the United States, brand new, was just trying to figure out how to vote for president using the Constitution as its guide. So... I'll spend the first segment, or possibly first two segments, depending on my timing, uh, going over how these states basically decided to do this in the first and second elections. Uh, so, going to go ahead and cut this now, do, do a little break for myself, and then start with the first quadrennial election. All right, so looking at the first quadrennial election, it did occur between December 5th, 1788 and January 10th, 1789. This is the only election in United States history that actually took place over two calendar years, uh, but it's not the only election that took about a month to perform. And really, when you think about this, considering that George Washington was basically selected to be the first president of the United States under the U.S. Constitution. Uh, it is surprising that it, it, it took this long, but that's just the way they had it set up, that voting started on December 15th, and the states had until January 10th of 1789 to get 
their votes in. Now, this is something that, that I, I've told in my history classes as a teacher when I taught high school, that though George Washington was the first official U.S. president under the Constitution, he wasn't actually the first president of the United States. Uh, under the Articles of Confederation, um, they had no official head of state with that, with the Articles. So basically, he was ever elected as president of the United States in Congress, uh, by default became the president of the United States, though it was not official. So uh, I believe without looking at it, that when Washington served as the first president under the current U.S. Constitution, he was actually the 12th or 13th uh, president. Now, uh, that's kind of amazing considering that the Articles of Confederation were ratified in 1781, and George Washington was elected as U.S. president in 1788. So in that seven-year span, they had several different uh, presidents of the United States in Congress. Uh, so obviously the Articles of Confederation did not work. Um, there were a lot of issues with it. That's why the founders went back and wrote the U.S. Constitution. And one of the issues that they faced was there was no head of state for the federal government. So that is something that they fixed in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, in fact, so much to the point, just pulling up my handy-dandy U.S. Constitution, that it was the second article in the Constitution, all about the president, who could serve, who could not serve. Uh, but, you know, that's just a little background as we get into this first quadrennial election. And, and when I say quadrennial election, so you're not confused, all that really means is an election that happens every four years. Quadrennial is four, so you have an annual four-year election. Uh, George Washington uh, was obviously the front runner; was really the only choice. But there were several men that ran to be vice president. Now, there were no official parties as of yet at this point. There really wasn't in the second quadrennial election that there was a party, and I'll get into that when I talk about the second quadrennial election. Uh, but there were Federalist and Anti-Federalist. Uh, and, and just to, to give a little background of what Federalist and Anti-Federalist were. Um, the, the Federalist... And, and I apologize, I'm, I'm kind of losing my train of thought on this. Because the Federalist Party that eventually did uh, come to being was led by Alexander Hamilton. Um, and it, it was dominant when it was finally formed uh, during the first political party system. Uh, but the Federalists believed in a strong national government. To, to put it as simply as possible, they believed in a strong national government. Whereas Anti-Federalists did not believe in a strong federal government. They believed that the states should maintain most of the power in the United States. So, you know, we had all these different men running, running, and I'm putting that in quotation marks because they didn't run for president. They were really running for vice president and running would give you the impression that there was a nomination process to all of this, and there wasn't. Uh, but those that were considered Federalist candidates, really, for the Vice Presidency of the United States were John Adams, uh, who was the former minister to the Kingdom of Great Britain and the Republic of the Netherlands, John Jay, who was the United States Secretary of Foreign Affairs, John Rutledge, who was the former governor of South Carolina, John Hancock, governor of Massachusetts, Samuel Huntington, who was the governor of Connecticut, Benjamin Lincoln, the former United States Secretary of War, and then George Washington, even though he considered himself an independent, uh, he did align with the Federalists in their beliefs, uh, who was the former commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. Now, there was really only one true anti-Federalist candidate. That was George Clinton, who was governor of New York. Uh, however, there were a couple of, no, there were a few more, uh, there was Edward Telfair, uh, anti-federalist uh, from Georgia, but he really did not 
consider much into this election. So December 10th, uh, 1788, or sorry, December 15th, 1788 started the first quadrennial presidential election. Now, what about when we're looking at this, what about the popular vote? Well, just to let you know, there were 43,782 votes uh, counted for the popular vote. The turnout is estimated at 11.6%. But uh, only, I gotta remember, only six of the 11 states that were actually eligible to cast electoral votes actually allowed any form of popular vote. And those states were, as soon as I find that information again, uh, Delaware, which had 522 people vote. Maryland, which had 11,342 people vote. No, I'm sorry. Uh, Maryland was a little over 15,000 votes. Uh, between the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist. Massachusetts was just under 4,000 votes. New Hampshire was at 1759. Pennsylvania uh, was just over 7,000 votes. And Virginia was 668. Uh, Now, the way that the popular vote actually was held was they were not casting votes for individuals, they were casting votes for Federalist versus non-Federalist. So when we look at those numbers, the Federalist, uh, out of the 43,782 votes cast, the Federalist electors received 39,624 votes, while the Anti-Federalists received 4,158 votes. The Federalist electors won 90.5% of the popular vote, while the Anti-Federalist received 9.5% of the vote. So next we're going to move on, obviously, to the electors, how they were chosen, who voted uh, for whom, and a couple of states, three states actually, that did not actually get to hold uh, elector votes uh, for certain reasons. Okay, so let's move on to the electoral vote, which, as we all know now, um, is really the only vote that matters when it comes to the President of the United States. Uh, I've I've said before that I don't like the system. There's different ways we should be able to do this uh, to to make it a little bit more fair, a little bit more equitable to those who actually vote. But this is the system we have, and until it changes, this is the system we get. Uh, So... When we look at the electoral votes, I want to quickly talk about uh, what each state had as far as their electoral votes. Uh, Now, just briefly looking through this. Okay. Um, Connecticut had seven electoral votes. Delaware had three. Georgia had five. Uh, Maryland had six. Massachusetts Well, actually, Maryland had eight, but they only cast six. Massachusetts had ten. New Hampshire with five. New Jersey with six. Pennsylvania with ten. South Carolina with seven. And Virginia with ten. Though they did have 12 with two not casting votes. Uh, So, you know, that's really interesting. uh, That during this time, the the state with the most by by population was Virginia. They had 12 electoral votes. They only cast 10. We'll get to that in just a moment. But you may have noticed I did not mention a couple of states. The big one, of course, being New York, who at that time just had eight electoral votes. Now, the 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 main reason that New York did not cast any electoral votes uh, was because of an issue uh, in New York's legislative branch. Um, the, the anti-federalist, uh, you know, who I said, uh, favored a, a weaker federal, uh, state, uh, 
main federal government. Um, they also consider themselves champions of the middle class and state prerogatives. They controlled the assembly. Uh, and the Federalists, who favored a strong federal government, had control of the Senate. So basically what was going on during this entire time, while the election was going on, is that the assembly would pass votes or pass bills uh, to basically decide how the electors were chosen in New York. It would go to the Senate. The Senate would then reject those bills. The Senate would then pass their own bills on how they thought that the electors should be chosen in New York, send it to the assembly, and the assembly would then also reject it. So by the time that we come to the close of the election, which officially was January 10th, but they had until January 7th to actually present how their electors would be chosen, New York still had not made a decision. So in the first quadrennial election, New York did not cast any electoral votes because they had not settled on a way to decide those uh, electoral votes. Uh, two others, North Carolina, who was supposed to have seven electoral votes, and Rhode Island, who was supposed to have three, they had actually not ratified the Constitution at this point, so they were not officially part of the United States constitutional government that was now in play. So because they had not yet ratified the Constitution, they did not get to choose electors to decide the presidency. So, but let's look at how each state chose how they would choose their electors. Uh, we have Connecticut, Georgia, New Jersey, and South Carolina. They all decided to appoint their electors by the state legislature. Massachusetts actually had two electors that were appointed by the state legislature, and then each remaining elector. Uh, which again was 10, so eight. The eight remaining electors were chosen by the state legislature, uh, legislature from the top two candidates in each house district. Uh, New Hampshire, uh, they chose their electors um, by letting the voters decide, letting the voters uh, vote. However, if no candidate won the majority, the state legislature would then appoint electors from the top 10 candidates. Uh, Virginia and, Deluga, uh, and Delaware did what basically Nebraska and Maine do this uh, uh, this time is that they divided their state into electoral districts, which one elector chosen per district by the voters of that district. Uh, one note with Virginia is that one electoral district failed to choose an elector, uh, and that's why they did not actually have a full elector. Uh, for the Electoral College. And then in Maryland and Pennsylvania, uh, the electors were chosen at large by voters. And then again, North Carolina and Rhode Island had not yet chosen or ratified the Constitution. So they were not able to vote. So how did this come out? Well, each elector uh, voted twice, one for presidents, uh, once for president, once uh, for vice president. So... To win the presidency, you only needed you needed 35 electors to become president. There were 69 electoral votes available. 35 got you over that halfway hump. And in the first uh, round of voting, George Washington received all 69 electoral votes. So he had 100% electoral votes. He became president of the United States. And then it came down to the second vote to decide uh, who became vice president. And, of course, that was John Adams. I think I said the wrong name earlier. My mistake. That's on me. Uh, John Adams became vice president when he received 34 electoral votes. Now, interesting here, he did not reach that 35 latitude uh, to win. Uh, but, you know, it was for vice president. Uh, so they were just, at this point, looking for majority win. The second closest to him after that was John Jay, who received nine uh, interesting to point out that George Clinton, who was, you know, the anti-federalist running, only received three electoral votes. And you got to remember that for the first few elections in our country's history, whoever won the most votes became president of the United States. Whoever got the second most votes became vice president. 
Now, this would actually come into play for the second quadrennial election uh, because, obviously, George Washington, even though he was an independent, uh, he sided with the Federalists. So you had a basically two Federalists at the top of the government. And again, when we look at the totals um, for all the votes, you only had an, a, a uh, 11.6% turnout. And you also got to remember that during this time, though some free slaves were allowed to vote, some women were allowed to vote, they weren't actually allowed to vote in for president. Uh, the only people that could vote during this time were white men who owned property. So George Washington becomes the first president of the United States in the first quadrennial election that took place between 1788 and 1789. Uh, the final segment for this, we're going to move on to the second quadrennial election, uh, which really didn't have any drama at all, but it's always, it's always fun and interesting, at least to me and I hope to my fellow forecasters, to look through that information. All right, forecasters, if you haven't heard about Anchor, and by now you should have, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain a few details. First of all, it's free. It's never going to cost you anything to make a podcast on Anchor FM. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money straight from your podcast with no minimum listen, uh, listenership. And it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Now, if you're interested in making your own podcast like I've been doing and like some of my friends and family have been doing, you need to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Again, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Okay, and now we're moving on to the second quadrennial election, the second United States election that was held between November 2nd and December 5th, 1792. I'm going to follow pretty much the same format as I did for the first quadrennial election, you know, give some background on the election itself, talk about the popular vote, and then talk about the electoral vote. Now, the first thing um, that I need to discuss is that in the second quadrennial election, George Washington is running for re-election pretty much assumed that he is going to win by an overwhelming majority. Uh, the popular, the turnout, as far as the popular vote, actually fell down to 6.3%, uh, which was a drop of drop off of 5.3% from the previous election. And we also saw roughly about 15,000 less votes take place. And this is despite the fact that um, that New York, uh, North Carolina, and Rhode Island all were able to vote. Just want to make sure I got yeah. So New York got their situation figured out uh, to decide how electors are chosen. Uh, North Carolina and Rhode Island went on and ratified the U.S. Constitution to become um, part of. The Constitution of the United States and Kentucky was actually added as a state. So we have four new states who are able to vote and make a decision in this election, yet we have less vote. Uh, again, this is between the Federalist and the still unorganized Democratic Republican uh, Party. It wasn't specifically a party yet. Uh, they kind of, it was an informal name of what would become the Democratic Republican Party. Uh, and here, here's, here's the fun thing. This was another election where basically everyone was running to become vice president. Uh, because the Federalist nominated George Washington as president again. And they also nominated John Adam, Adams to become vice the vice president for a second term as all as well. Democratic Republican nomination nominated George Washington for president of the United States. But this time, um, just like in the first election, they went with George Clinton to become the vice president. 
Uh, now, we do see an uptick in the number of electoral votes because, of course, we do have uh, more states voting. So, in the first quadrennial election, there were 138 electoral votes available. Uh, but again, because it was done in rounds, you only needed 35 to win um, out of the 69 that voted in the first round. Uh, in the second election, the number goes up quite dramatically. Um, where, you know, they voted again in two different rounds. So 132 total electoral votes, you needed 67 to secure that. Uh, but in total, once they all voted, there were 264. Uh, so let, let's talk about the popular vote again. Just 28,579 people voted. Uh, again, that's down to 6.3% of the total population. So what states voted? Again, only six of the 15 states chose their electors in the form of popular vote. Uh, this was Kentucky, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. Uh, now, something ha has happened. We don't have any vote totals for Kentucky, though elections were held. And Virginia, for some reason, uh, there's only 13 counties of the 76 total counties that we still have the votes for. The other uh, 63 have been lost. But what we do have for numbers from Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania is that 898 people voted in Maryland. Um, all for George Washington on the Federalist side. Uh, in Massachusetts, 20,343 people voted for Washington on the Federalist side. In New Hampshire, 2,762 people voted for George Washington on the Federalist side. And then just for fun, Pennsylvania, uh, 3,479 people voted for George Washington on the Federalist side, while 1,097 people voted for George Washington on the anti-Federalist Democratic-Republican Party side. Um, so, you know, George Washington did win 100% of the popular vote, 28,579 votes. No other candidate received any votes. So who was specifically running or who got votes uh, as far as the Electoral College, which I'll go more depth in just a moment. Uh, you had George Washington, John Adams, uh, who ran as a Federalist. Then you also had George Clinton running again as a Democratic Republican from New York, Thomas Jefferson. Um, who, of course, wrote the Declaration of Independence running as a Democratic Republican. And Aaron Burr running as a Democratic Republican as well. Those who have seen Hamilton should be very familiar with Aaron Burr. Uh, but the Democratic Republicans were basically following Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. Again, if you've seen Hamilton, you know some of this story. Um, uh, but no, I, I apologize. I apologize. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was a strong federalist, uh, who actually wanted a stronger federal government. Thomas Jefferson and Burr, uh, who had been friends with Hamilton, broke with him on this, favored state rights, um, over what Hamilton wanted to do with the economy. And during this time, Thomas Jefferson was, of course, the Secretary of State. Uh, but, you know, we look at it, it wasn't a contest. Uh, George Washington easily, easily won the popular vote. We're going to move on to the Electoral College vote. Okay, so I'm about to move on to the Electoral portion of the second quadrennial election. Uh, I do want to just briefly go back a little bit, and because I forgot to tell you when the election actually took place. It took place between November 2nd, did not mean to pop right there, uh, but it took place between November 2nd and December 5th, 1792. So again, just like the first quadrennial election, it did take a month to go through the process, uh, but they moved it forward. Uh, it actually started on a Friday, November 2nd, went to Wednesday, December 5th, uh, to elect 
either George Washington for his second term or elect a new president. And just like I said in that first seg uh, first uh, segment, there really was not any surprise. Uh, George Washington received all 132 electoral votes to become president. Uh, now, there was a little bit closer vote uh, for vice president. Uh, John Adams, this time, he did need 67 votes in order to become vice president. Uh, he did receive 77. Uh, George Clinton, though he did do better uh, in the election, still only uh, garnered 50 electoral votes. While Thomas Jefferson received four, Aaron Burr just got one. Now, when we look at the breakdown uh, as far as states, where Clinton got his biggest support was from New York, obviously, because he was from New York, uh, North, uh, and he got 12 electoral votes. Uh, North Carolina gave him 12 electoral votes as well. Uh, and Virginia also gave him 20, uh, gave him 21 electoral votes, which was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, and then Pennsylvania gave him one. Uh, Georgia also gave him four. Uh, Kentucky gave Jefferson all four of their votes. And then South Carolina gave Burr his one electoral college vote. Uh, now I'm just going to briefly run down the states, how many electoral college votes they actually had. Uh, Connecticut had nine, Delaware had three, Georgia had four, Kentucky had four, Maryland had eight, Massachusetts uh, had 16, New Hampshire had six, New Jersey had seven, New York had 12, North Carolina had 12, Pennsylvania had 15, Rhode Island had four, South Carolina had eight, Vermont had three, Virginia at that time, was essentially the California of the United States as far as population. They had 21 electoral votes. Now to uh, go through how each state chose their elector, um, elect, electors, uh, Kentucky and Virginia both uh, just, at least for Virginia, just like they did in the first quadrennial election, but Kentucky joined them with this. They divided their states into electoral districts with one elector chosen per district by the voters of that district. Uh, and that is how, well, no, Kentucky and Virginia did not actually split theirs. Uh, but moving on, Maryland and Pennsylvania both allowed, each of their electors were chosen by voters statewide. So uh, again, just like with the first quadrennial election, uh, people weren't voting for candidates, they were voting for electors. Uh, in Massachusetts, there's a little bit convoluted. Their main way they selected their electors is that two congressional districts chose five electors each. The remaining two districts chose three electors. Each elector was chosen by a majority of vote of voters in the congressional districts. If an insufficient number of electors were chosen by the majority vote from a congressional district, the remaining electors would then be appointed by the state legislature in New Hampshire, the way they chose their electors is that each elector was chosen by a majority of votes uh, of voters statewide. And just like in Massachusetts, if an insufficient number of electors were voted, um, uh, it, it gets really convoluted. Uh, but a runoff was then held between the top two in vote getters, where in is the number of vacancies remaining. So Looking back at New Hampshire, who at that time had six, let's say that two electors were chosen, uh, but there were four that had not been chosen. So you would have two times four. So the top eight vote getters uh, would then go into a runoff, and the top six being, or top four uh, being chosen would get in. And then all the rest of the states, uh, the state legislatures uh, appointed their electors. Now, though we are getting close to the first party system of the United States, we're not quite there yet. Uh, as I, I said, uh, you know, this says roughly 1792, but at the presidential le level, even though there was a Democratic Republican Party, it wasn't a fully established party yet. So the first party system was not uh, really in play. Um, and, you know, I'd, 
to, to go back, because I knew I'd forgotten something with the popular vote. Uh, again, with the popular vote, they're voting for electors, not specifically for candidates. Uh, in the popular vote, the Federalist candidates received 28,300 votes out of the 28,579, which just left the Democratic-Republicans with 279 votes. Uh, to break that down, the Federalist Party, or Federalist candidates received 99% of the vote, while the Democratic-Republicans received right about 1%. So even though the Democratic-Republican Party only managed 279 popular votes, uh, they still ended up with 55 electoral votes. Now, remember, you only need 67 to become the vice president or the president, and we've got the Democratic-Republican Party receiving 55, which is 12 less, despite only getting 279 popular votes. This goes back to the main reason why the popular vote really doesn't matter. I mean, you only get you get 1% of the popular vote, and then you get close to 50%. I think it was about 40%. Let me do the math on this real quick while I have you on the line of those remaining votes. Now, remember, this is just for the pre uh, vice president, not for the presidency. Uh, uh, so they got 41% of the vice presidential votes, despite receiving 1% of the popular vote. Now, really, the main reason that the Democratic-Republicans even put anyone up against John Adams is that they, just, they did not like the idea of two Federalist candidates, even though George Washington, once again, was an in, uh, independent. They did not like the idea of the two top people in the country, president and vice president, being both of the same mind as Federalists. They, they really believed that if you have a Federalist as the president, you should have a Democratic-Republican or an anti-Federalist as a vice president to kind of balance things out. Uh, but they did not get that. So, you know, that's pretty much... The first and second quadrennial election. Now, where it really gets interesting, where drama actually sets in, will be the third quadrennial election uh, that will occur in 1796. Uh, as we all know, if we've studied any type of history, George Washington decided not to run for a third term. Uh, he did not want to be seen as a king or anything close to that. Um, so he did not run for a third term. He retired from politics completely, retired from government completely. So the third quadrennial election uh, is really where the drama starts, and that's also where the party system really gets going. Uh, so you now that's it for the first and second quadrennial election. Next week we'll move on to the third. Uh, after this break, we'll I'll move on to the seditious and traitorous acts by certain members of Congress. Hello, forecasters. This is Michael Hendricks. Still looking for supporters out there anywhere in the internet universe. And did you know that you could be a supporter of this podcast for as little of 99 cents a month? Or if you want to be a little generous, you can go up to $4.99 a month. Or if you want to be very generous, you can go up to $9.99 a month. All you need to do is go to anchor.fm forward slash prez forecast. That is P-R-E-Z forecast. Select the amount that you want to send me each month to help me with this podcast and make it even better each time I come out. Go to that website. You can also leave me a message. It is an audio message. If you say something funny, I may even put it on the air. That is anchor.fm forward slash press forecast. So your support today. All right. So for my final segment, I, I do have to go back into politics because the uh, Trumplicans are once again... Uh, out of their freaking minds. At this point, uh, they've lost every challenge they've tried to come up with to overturn this fair, free, um, election, um, that saw no fraud, saw no stealing of votes, saw nothing that they keep claiming, yet, as always, provide absolutely no proof 
that anything like this happened. In fact, the only three cases of fraud that they've actually found all happened in Pennsylvania. In fact, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania is trying to get the lieutenant governor of Texas to pay him $6 million so he's going to give away to charity because they did find three cases of fraud in Pennsylvania. In all three cases, this is an example of a man, uh, two men who tried to vote for Trump twice, once using their dead mothers, and then another man who actually tried to go back into the voting booth like 10 minutes after he'd voted with sunglasses on and try to vote as his son to get a second vote for Trump. They have now all been charged with election fraud. And this does carry us a prison sentence. So now we have a situation where it's gone through all the systems. The Trump administration is one for like 62 or one in 62 with their, their lawsuits. The Electoral College met and voted uh, to keep Biden, uh, to give Biden the, the win as they were supposed to. And so the next one coming up is on January 6th, where Congress has to certify the votes. This is always the last step before the inauguration, and it's usually a nothing burger. Nothing usually ever happens. Yet we now have at least 11 senators and well over 100 representatives, all Republicans, almost entirely white men, that are planning to object to the certification of the electoral vote. Now, the process of this is fairly simple. Someone in the House has to object. Someone in the Senate has to object. And then each, the House goes into its chamber to debate. The Senate goes into its chamber to debate. Now, the only way they can actually throw out any electoral votes is if both houses vote to do it. It's not going to happen in the House. And so once the House votes, no, we're not going to overturn these votes, the process is over. It, it, it's political theater at its worst. But to me, this is still sedition and this is still treason. They are wiping their asses with the Constitution in order to keep Trump in office. And, and it makes absolutely no sense. It, it's ridiculous on its face. It's childish on its face. Uh, so what I'm going to do here for the next few minutes, I'm going to read off the list of names that, I, that I've come up with to this point of those men and women who have decided to ignore the Constitution and object to an election that was free and fair and had no fraud. So with the Senators... We have Rafael Cruz from Texas, who is trying harder to defend Trump than he ever did to defend his wife or his dad from Trump, which is amazing. Ron Johnson out of Wisconsin. James Langford out of my state of Oklahoma, which disgusts me. Can't wait to vote him out. Steve Daines of Montana. John Kennedy of Louisiana, who is absolutely tearing down the name of John Kennedy. Marsha Blackburn with Tennessee, who apparently doesn't understand or doesn't know that when you amend the Constitution, when you pass amendments, you're changing the Constitution. She's very famous for a tweet where she said, we will never change the Constitution, apparently unaware that the Constitution has been tw changed 27 times. Mike Braun of Indiana, Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming, Roger Marshall of Kansas, Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, Tommy Tuberville the former Auburn coach who got ran out of town of Alabama, and Josh Hawley of Missouri. Now we go to the representatives that are on record. They're, they're saying, I think almost most of the Republican, uh, sorry, the Trumplican caucus is going to vote against certification, but these are the ones that are on record to this point. Brian Babin of Texas, Andy Biggs of Arizona, which interesting and I'll name them as I go through, the ones in the states that they're looking specifically to overturn, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, that apparently these representatives don't understand that if you throw out the votes in these states, 
then their elections are also thrown out. Andy Biggs is one of them. Lauren Boebert of Colorado, Mo Brooks of Alabama, who started this whole thing, Ted Budd of North Carolina, Jerry Carl of Alabama, Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina, Andrew Clyde of Georgia, which would throw his election out, Byron Donalds of Florida, Jeff Duncan of South Carolina, Matt Gates of Florida, who mocked uh, the wearing of masks by wearing a gas mask on the House floor, and then proceeded to get COVID himself. Louis Gomert of Texas, Bob Good of Virginia, Lance Gooden of Texas, Paul Goser of Arizona, another one that would have his election thrown over if he got what he wanted. Mark Green of Tennessee, Diana Harshbarger from Tennessee, Yvette Harrell from New Mexico, Jody Heiss of Georgia, who would also see their seat gone. Clay Higgins of Louisiana, Ronnie Jackson, former doctor of President Trump, who lied about Trump's health, but got himself elected in Texas. John Joyce, Fred Keller, Mike Kelly, and Dan Muser, all of Pennsylvania, who would see their seats gone as well. Barry Moore, Alabama, Ralph Norman of South Carolina, Burgess Owens of Utah, and Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, who would also see his seat gone. Guy um, Gresham Thaler out of Pennsylvania and Lloyd Smucker out of Pennsylvania, who would see their seats gone. Marjorie Taylor Greene out of Georgia, who would see her seat gone. G.T. Thompson of Pennsylvania, who would see his seat gone. And Jefferson Van Drew of New Jersey. I put this on Twitter. Uh, my press forecast uh, Twitter account. They, in my opinion, they should be charged with sedition and treason. They are violating their oath to Congress. And for some of these people, they have not even been sworn in yet as a congressperson. And they're already violating their oath. If it were me, and I was Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, I would refuse to seat any of them. This will come back on them at some point. Maybe not in the next election or the election after that. At some point, this will come back and bite them. Karma has a way of doing that. They're doing this for pure political theater and nothing more they know what they're going to do what what they're doing is going to do nothing to change the election the election's over it was fair i mean can you imagine what would happen if we had a house controlled by republicans well let's look at 2016 when we had a house controlled by republicans and a hundred Democratic representatives decided they were going to challenge or object to the Electoral College being certified to make Donald Trump president in 2016. I mean, these Republicans have already spent four years vilifying Democrats for things they didn't do or, and didn't say. But say that they actually did this. Can you imagine them being seated at that time? No, it would not have happened. But for now, they're going to get scot-free away with this. I'm hoping the voters in these states punish them at, at when they come back out to vote and vote them out of office. I don't see it happening because the Republican Party, again, has become the Trumplican Party. All glory to Trump. This is a cult, ladies and gentlemen. And they will do and say anything to stand up for a man who served one term as president. And was absolutely blown out in his reelection. Now, one little final note on this. Got in a fun little argument on Facebook. Uh, there's a new meme going around. Um, basically stating that there's no way Biden got over 81 million votes because there weren't enough registered voters for him to get 81 with Donald Trump getting 74 million. Uh, the, the whole thing is just full of errors. 
coming up with those registered voters. Not really sure where they even got the number. I, this one particular person said that he got it from the census, which the census does not provide a moving number of registered people. It, it just doesn't. Census numbers, census data is collected yearly. Collected yearly. It's not collected live. So whatever number they came up from the census was a bad number. And, and this has all been explained thoroughly. And, and, and so my, in, my ending argument on this was, okay, so if, if you're going to say this, if you're going to say the numbers, the math is on your side, then I get to fully say that there's no way that Trump got $74 million or voters and that Biden did get his 81, which we'll put it into the number that you've arbitrarily selected as the number of registered voters in the United States of America, which is going to push Trump's number way down. There's nothing stopping me from doing this. It's a fool's challenge. And, and then, of course, this person went on to say, I'm not a Trump supporter. Well, bull. Bull. There, there's no way that you can look at these numbers, trash Biden, saying there's no way he could get that many votes, and then claim you're not a Trump voter or a Trump supporter. It is what it is, ladies and gentlemen. They will throw everything at the wall and hope anything sticks. But January 20th comes around. We're 18 days out. We get rid of this nightmare of Trump, and then we just have to deal with his cult until it crashes and burns. So that's it for season two, episode one, the first and second quadrennial elections. Again, next week, I'll do the third quadrennial election, which I promise will have a lot more drama than the first two did. As always, stay safe, wear your mask when out in public, and if you can, socially distance at least six feet apart. Have a good evening and enjoy the new year.